0: Hi there, welcome to the show. It is Friday the 24th of September and once again it's a beautiful day here in TW11. I'm going to endeavour to get to Newmarket for the second day of the Cambridgeshire meeting but the fuel shortage is worrying me because I was on naught miles when I got home last night and uh, there isn't actually a petrol station within a couple of miles of me so whether I get there or not is a a moot point. Anyway, fingers crossed I will somehow. Now one man who is already in Newmarket or at least spends a significant portion of his time there is the uh, MP, the local MP, Matt Hancock. Uh, He has been um, a frequent advocate of the the sport of horse racing, uh, but obviously on a more national and global scale is more uh, famous for having been the... Um, Secretary of State for Health and Social Care and infamous for his um, rather precipitous fall from grace. He is now on the back benches. Yesterday, he led a debate in Parliament on the contribution of horse racing to the economy and wrote an extensive piece uh, that was published on Politics Home that you can find posted on his own Twitter feed. Lydia Hislop is back with me this morning. I'm very pleased to say, Lydia, what is Matt Hancock MP up to?
1: Well, he's got to find something to do these days, hasn't he? I would have thought. Um, he is obviously the Conservative MP for West Suffolk, so one of the things I would imagine that he would want to do is to forward the concerns of his constituents, and he has very close involvement with new markets and the participants of horse racing um, that live in and work in, in that area um, and he would want to make sure that their voice is, is heard, that's what he's meant to be doing representing that area. I mean clearly there was, uh, it was mooted that there was a threat of deselection um, immediately after his affair came out and so he will want to make sure that he will give um, his constituents a very good reason not to deselect him. Um, I mean I, I, I was joking but he, he he will want something to do, a project to focus on um, as, a, as a backbencher. Um, he might think that there are ways in which he can broaden his interests and broaden the things that he can be involved in as a backbencher via horse racing. I mean, because he, he does have a, a, a very serious um, love for the sport. He likes riding himself. Um, I think he's taken part in the um, town plate, hasn't he? This is a genuine um, interest he has in the sport. Um, and so he's, maybe he, he wants to broaden his interest. Maybe he wants to take a more active involvement. And maybe even, is he looking past politics? Uh, it, it, it did make me wonder. In fact, the moment that uh, everything happened to him when he when he he had to step down as um, as health secretary, I, I was wondering whether in the medium to long term or even more immediately, he might be thinking about um, a job in, in horse racing, in horse racing, administration. Um, And uh, could this be something that he's thinking about in the long or medium term?
0: So yesterday in Parliament, what were the central themes with which he led the debate?
1: He was arguing that the levy should apply to all horse racing globally, bet on by British customers. And that way that would um, open up 20 million more annually to help British racing Build back better. I don't know whether you've heard that phrase before. But that Funnily enough, what he was I, arguing that British I,
0: I have, do. I have. I mean, a buttery biscuit base is a better three B catchphrase, but build back better. Which it is. Which it is.
1: Let's let's not let's not argue about that. Buttery yeah.
0: biscuit base is as much I, better. As I as I struggle to get fuel into my car to get to Newmarket today, I'll just keep thinking build back better, build back better.
1: Yeah, I'm slightly worried about getting home from Newmarket. I mean, it's fine. I can get to and from Newmarket fine over the next couple of days, but whether I'll actually be able to get home afterwards, I'm not quite so sure. But uh, don't worry, the government has advised everybody not to panic by petrol, so I'm sure that won't happen. It's Matt Hancock,
0: no it. Hancock will put you up if you're if you're short of somewhere to stay. <laughs>
1: Yes, well, I'll, I'll, I'll add that to the list of options. Anyway, anyway. He was, saying, anyway. Um, he was um, putting forward the case of horse racing's positive impact in, in terms of Newmarket and right across the, the UK. He was highlighting how much it does for jobs, prosperity and Britain's soft power around the world. He mentions um, that it's the second biggest sport by any measure, referring to attendance, revenue, employment, and also one of the biggest private industry employers in Britain. So he's referring to farriers and feed suppliers and equipment suppliers. And he was highlighting the estimated £4 billion a year contribution to the UK economy, in um, which he used the, um, the word bridgehead then, which I actually had to look up. And of course, it's a military term. It's a strong position secured by an army inside enemy territory, from which to advance or attack. So apparently, it's a bridgehead. British racing is uh, for significant training investment in the UK in business, property, and universities. But he's also highlighted that COVID uh, cost the industry an estimated uh, four hundred to four hundred and fifty uh, million pounds um, in lost revenues. And so he is arguing that horse racing needs this extra ongoing permanent levy boost to enable it to remain globally relevant clearly i agree with the argument that uh, british racing needs to work to remain globally relevant that it can't be um, resting on its laurels it can't be complacent that it's got historically the the, the most interesting um, competitive and historically relevant races in the world it's actually got to back that up with continuing to have the most competitive races the best horses regularly competing in good number in its best races in order to remain globally relevant to the racing world and the bloodstock industry so that is a, I mean that is a serious call it's a serious requirement for british racing whether this is the way to do it i don't know how strong is the argument do you think that uh levy should apply to all horse racing globally bet on by british
0: Punters. Well, I suppose it it depends whether you can successfully articulate the case that the reason punters are betting on horse racing that doesn't take place on British soil is because they have been inspired to do so by their interest in racing on British soil in the first place. Therefore, the money that they are wagering either in shops or online on foreign racing is as a direct consequence of um, what the product in Great Britain has done. It's an easy, easy argument for you and me to toss around between us. Not so easy for us to sell to people with zero interest in the sport. I would have thought. Uh, I think oh, yeah. the, the the argument for a turnover based levy, which is the other central plank of his argument, is probably an easy, easier one to sell. I would have thought.
1: Yes, I mean I think in terms of the uh, levy applying to all horse racing globally, I think the argument is easier to make about Irish racing than perhaps it is to uh, the more far flung uh, racing. And uh, the point about you know whether it's um, turnover-based or or profits-based, you're still essentially just asking for more money from bookmakers, aren't you? You're just dressing it up in different ways. And I can see that there is a reason why it'd be more comfortable for um, British racing to have its profits based on turnover system, i.e. generating more interest in it as a sport rather than bookmakers' profits, i.e. getting more money out of punters who are interested in that sport. I can see it is a more morally comfortable, arguably, place to be to have a turnover based um, levy however it is still boiling down to more money from bookmakers please in one way or another
0: so all that matt hancock is doing is um potentially positive for horse racing because he's raising awareness of some um, financial shortcomings and some n- financial necessities in-, in Parliament and the sport, and particularly his constituents in West Suffolk, I'm sure will be very pleased with that. But what about the implications for the micro politics of racing here, Lydia? How's this going to go down in BHA Towers?
1: I think they'll be very pleased that somebody has gone out and, uh, and batted for them in this in this way that led a debate on on horse racing's contribution to the British economy and explained why uh, the sport needs um, supporting, Explain uh, the positives about this sport for the the British economy more widely than perhaps uh, many people would would realise. I think that's got to be an an alloyed positive for horse racing. Um, And I think that the authorities in in British racing will be absolutely delighted that someone has gone out, out batting for them. But in terms of what it actually means in the short term, you know, I, I, I can't help but feel that it's not going to amount to much because uh, the government have written to racing and said that they essentially need to make a better case for levy reform. They've sort of patted them on the head and said in a sort of woolly way that they're willing to look at the timetable to look at whether there should be levy reform. But they have essentially said, you need to come back with a better case. Now, um, has, has Mac Hancock made a better case? Well, he's, he'll certainly have helped. He's he's reminded everybody of the relevance of horse racing. Of course, we we also have to think about the the, the downsides that can be connected with Matt, Han- Matt Hancock, and these things can be overplayed in echo chambers like Twitter. But um, you know, horse racing's close association with Matt Hancock and the uh, way that the government for, uh, performed over the pandemic, the uh, way in which popular culture has uh, linked things such as the Cheltenham Festival uh, repeatedly to the pandemic uh, picking and choosing um, those incidents um, that that, that they believe were major drivers of the pandemic you know it it seems absurd to point to the Cheltenham Festival and not mention the Tube in London for example Um, so you know whether there's any logic to it nonetheless concepts like that have held and so um, Matt Hancock's association with how the government handled the pandemic Um, has brought horse racing some downsides as well. Um, But again, it's very difficult to to gauge the actual meaning of that because it can often be just a very small uh, number of very vocal people.
0: Uh, Lydia, sad news that Santa Barbara had died after a displacement of that pelvic injury incurred earlier in the week. I felt she was a filly that was just getting the hang of it, really.
1: Yes, it's a a bright talent thwarted. Uh, the decision to switch her horizons to America definitely had a transformative effect on her. Um, albeit, you know, she did run very well, when second in the in the in the Irish Pretty Poly, Poly at the Curragh in June, uh, only beaten narrowly. But her her the the, the successes that made her reputation, or or proved the reason why she had such a big reputation when she came to the. Um, 1,000 guineas as a once-raced maiden who'd won that maiden and, and suddenly she was 5-2 joint favourite for the, for the 1,000 guineas. That reputation that she's had um, from the start of her three-year-old career, she'd finally managed to, to prove uh, what it was that Aidan O'Brien had seen in her by those victories in the Belmont Oaks and in the Beverly D.
0: Santa Barbara who very sadly died yesterday. On to the action today at Newmarket and tomorrow. Master of the Seas is the star act today, returning after a small injury incurred after he was second in the 2000 guineas. I was very interested in your interview with Charlie Appleby yesterday, Lydia, about um, Adair and Hurricane Lane, which we've been talking about for about the last two weeks on this podcast, but we got, we got some, some serious clarity from Charlie.
1: Yes, we did, because it had been a bit strange, haven't it, to try and, and, and work out exactly why What's seen from the outside seemed to be a coyness about naming a target for these two horses. and uh, earlier in the day, yesterday, Um, the Racing Post had gone with um, a a story where um, they said that the decision had been made for Hurricane Lane, the St. Legend winner, to go for the arc and Charlie Appleby uh, moved to correct that story um, in the interview with me yesterday. However, the Racing Post to some degree have stuck their guns and today have said that the Godolphin tweet about Hurricane Lane's work appeared to point towards the horse running in the arc. What Charlie actually said to us yesterday was that um, he isn't going to make it or isn't going to make a decision right now for each of those horses for what he believes are very good reasons. The first of them being in the case of American Lane, he's only j- just very recently run over 14 and a half furlongs at Doncaster. Although he's making good progress towards a putative target of the arc, you know, he needs to keep monitoring him to make sure that, that race that he's fully recovered from the St. Ledger and that he is ready to give his of his best Um, in the arc and similar comments apply to Adyar who of course missed his um, arc prep with a hind leg infection. Charlie made the point that this horse um, worked on Wednesday will be working again on Saturday Um, and things seem to be going well in his recovery from that infection. Nonetheless he has had a setback and he wants to make sure that the horse is definitely heading in the right direction, has more positive signs before he says yes it is the arc, green light, that's where we're going.
0: Okay Uh, the senior trainers in Ireland have given their uh, approval or at least they've accepted it as perfectly reasonable uh, that pre-race testing should take place. It was rolled out on the flat at Punchestown last week and at Listowel this week for the Kerry National meeting. Um, What do we make of that?
1: Well I mean with all of these sort of innovations there's always an element of grumbling isn't there in Britain or Ireland or anywhere around the world I'd imagine about how you know it's not a good idea they don't like it it's going to be disruptive and then when it actually comes to pass it ends up being you know far less inhibitive than than imagined the blood samples aim to identify increased tco2 readings that are commonly associated with the practice um, of milkshaking and that's designed to reduce muscle fatigue and enhance performance Um, and the testing is said to take place in the horse's stable between 45 and 75 minutes before the start of the race and it seems like the trainers have received this now that it is actually happening um in a perfectly positive way um and i think it's needed uh, it, it, it's clearly trying to target uh, anything that might be having a short-term effect which miraculously disappears in a quick enough time that the existing uh, testing procedures are not able to pick it up and anything that strengthens uh the uh integrity and probity and is seen to in- in strengthen those things in in racing has got to be a good thing
0: yeah trying to test effectively for the increased uh, of the. Um... <laughs> that's the
1: word i couldn't say and i was skillfully avoiding it well done you, you, the whole time i was speaking you've been practicing saying yes. that you, to be honest
0: yes i have <laughs> guilty totally guilty A very special tradition continues at York Racecourse today. It's the Macmillan Cancer Charity Race. One of the participants is the intrepid Sean Quinn, son and assistant to his father, John. I'm very pleased to say the Nick Luck Daily podcast is one of Sean's many uh, logo sponsors today. But most importantly, Sean, everybody is raising money for an extremely important cause and one that's very close to your heart. Just tell us why
2: absolutely nick um i'm looking forward to uh, to riding in the race today um, cancer affects pretty much everybody these days and um, sadly early last year um we we lost um a lady called Cheryl Steele who um was one of the head lasses on uh, on our high field yard uh, she was only in her late 30s and um put up a brave battle but unfortunately lost her life to cancer so i put my name forward to ride in the race last year and of course like like most things Owing to COVID, it was it was cancelled and put back, and um, I'm, I'm thankful that it's uh, been restaged and and we're able to do it today. And I'm, I'm riding in memory of her.
0: So these are, are all um, unlicensed riders who are who are going out to to take their their place. And for those who are thinking, Oh, Sean Quinney's grown up in a racing yard. That's no big deal, Sean. It'd be fair to say you didn't start off uh, with much enthusiasm for a life in the saddle.
2: No, absolutely not. I wasn't much much of a rider as a kid, so never really pursued it, Nick, and uh, spent more of my time on on a rugby field. And uh, from the age of 10 probably didn't ride a horse until two years ago when on the quiet I I took myself off and uh, had lessons with half an eye on on doing this. But I thought I'll do the lessons quietly just in case I'm as bad as I think I am and uh, we'll uh, we'll say no more about it. But uh, I made it through the lessons and... uh, got back on a horse in the yard and have been riding out daily now for the last 18
0: months and and have thoroughly enjoyed it how much of a difference has that made to your to your life just to to everything to your well-being just to the way you think about the game yeah of course i mean you know
2: being able to to ride these animals and and hopefully ride them competently is 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 massive and um you know i started out maybe riding one lot and, and now I'm riding five or six on, on mornings that I'm not uh I'm not going racing and um w- when I started this uh this journey I was I was just over 14 stone and this morning I'm
0: tipping the scales at just under 11 stone so health-wise it's probably not been a bad thing either uh, you've had to work really hard I saw some pictures of you last night and I did worry that if you had a bath this morning you might you might slip down the plug hole yeah
2: well, I've, <laughs> I've just come out of the bath and uh just, just to make sure the weight's the weights all good which thankfully it is and you know, I, feel, I feel good and uh, have a small bite to eat before the race and uh, hopefully hopefully do it justice.
0: Now, like all sportsmen and you were a pretty handy rugby player like you are very competitive. The horse you're riding, you've had a late horse switch. Is this a, a positive or a negative? Um,
2: it's, it's probably a negative because the horse I was hoping to ride is the circa 90 rated first impression but uh drying conditions on the knaves have meant that it just wouldn't have been fair to run him he needs juice in the ground so i've jumped onto a horse called empire state of mind who's in excellent form He was just touched off up at air at the western meeting um last week he's he's rated about 10 or 12 pound lower than first impression but he's he's a young horse who's who's improving and i've ridden him loads at home He's, he's a good ride so um knowing him will certainly be a help
0: uh, Sean, very best of luck. Um, all good wishes with you. Wish I could be at York today, but unfortunately, commitments at Newmarket uh, mean otherwise. And I hope you raise an, raise an absolute shed load. Just for for those listening who want to who want to help help you out and and give to McMillan. How can they How can they do that today? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've got I've got a Just Giving
2: page, and um, if anybody Googled Just Giving and S Quinn Racing all one word, that would take you to my uh, my Just Giving page.
0: Sean Quinn there, all the best to Sean. Now we're off to Watership Down again for part four of our series behind the scenes. As we build up to Tattersall's Sales, here's Charlotte.
3: I'm at Watership Down Stud again, this time with vet Alistair Welch, who's been overseeing the yearlings heading to book one from very early on. But Alistair, in terms of getting these yearlings ready for the sale, what does that entail for you?
4: The sort of prep bit in the, the immediate pre-sale bit involves, I suppose, two parts. The the it's not regulated as such, but the sort of more official part where we're looking at things that are probably required to take the horses to the sale. A set of radiographs, um, an endoscopic examination of its upper airway, uh, listen to its heart, look in its eyes, check it's got two testicles if it's a male, that sort of thing. Um, that's the sort of the more official part, so that every, more or less every horse that goes to book one will have that done in advance of the sale. And then there's a the sort of... The ad hoc bits for individuals. Well, that horse is—it's has, has got a bit of a, a swollen leg that needs some sort of treatment, or, or that one has had a sore foot. We have to deal with it. So there's there's, there's two parts to it: the, the the bit that everyone every horse goes through, and then the ad hoc bits, which are hopefully mm-hmm. far, few and far between, um, and um, everything in between, as it were.
3: The radiographs that you take at the stud for each yearling, as you mentioned, will then be available to everyone at the sales as they're in the repository. But what sort of shots are you taking, and how many?
4: There's a sort of standard set of radiographs that's pretty much worldwide accepted. We would do front fetlocks, knees, hind fetlocks, hocks, and stifles. Thirty-six individual images is a sort of typical set. They are they are standard projections, so everyone takes them in the same way and they are therefore readable by anyone nowadays around the world. So so they go into a repository, but images can be bounced around the world for second, third, fourth opinion, as it were. Because this has been done for a number of years, there are a group of abnormalities that we would find, or hopefully not find, um, where we have an ability to not, you can't predict the future on an individual basis, but you can say to a purchaser, Look, this has X or Y wrong with it. Um, and there's a a small chance, a medium chance, as it were, of, of this being a problem, or actually look, at, it does look abnormal, but actually we, we see these all the time, and they're not a problem. So it's, it's a little bit like, I suppose, footballers who have pre-sale medicals. You, you look inside the, the, the horse to see, are there any abnormalities we would be concerned about and, and you know guide the purchaser accordingly.
3: These yearlings are still so young and growing, so are there common abnormalities that you see when looking at these radiographs?
4: Yeah, there is. So, so in the the sort of fetus, the the bones are essentially cartilaginous, and they they transform into bone over a sort of a specified period, depending on which bone it is. Um, and that transformation from cartilage into bone occasionally goes wrong, and there are a group of development, developmental abnormalities that we see frequently, and they occur usually in the same place. So there are certain positions of the skeleton that we will see frequent abnormalities, and, and the, the set of radiographs we've taken have been tailored to try and highlight the common things. So there the will always be a, a, a rarity that is missed on a, a standard set of radiographs, but that is the rarity. The radiographs are set up such that we hopefully pick up the common abnormalities or, or, alternatively, we don't see any. We can send the set, send the horse to the sales with a set of clean radiographs and say, look, actually, have a look. There's nothing wrong with it. We're, we're happy with it.
3: And you mentioned earlier that you'll perform an endoscopic examination of each yearling's airway, which is graded on a scale. You'll record the video footage of what you've seen, which is then added to the repository for prospective buyers and vets to access. But what insight can this offer?
4: If you go to the sales, there's about four different scales. Different practices use different scales. Different continents use different scales. And they all have slightly different meanings. The difficulty with all of them is that we are looking at the horse's airway at rest, um, and we now recognize that whilst it's a bit of a guide, um, the advent of dynamic endoscopy, so the ability to look at horses' area exercise, has demonstrated that what we see at rest does not necessarily equate to what we see at exercise. It, it's definitely not useless, but it's less helpful than we thought it was 10, 15 years ago. We recognize that a horse can have a, a relatively average scope. At rest, and yet is fine at exercise, and equally can have a normal scope at rest, um, and has a problem at exercise. So it's it's a guide, but it's it's no more than that.
3: These yearlings are being exercised for the first time during yearling prep, and so do you see common problems occurring from a veterinary point of view?
4: If you have a horse with perfect conformation, it moves very well. Then hopefully we don't have any conformational associated lamenesses. But if you've got a horse that's not quite correct, when you put it into exercise, that's when you know a curb will appear, or you know that's just an example, but something will 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 occur.
3: Just to pick up on the curb, you hear people say they're a sign of weakness or poor conformation, but how significant can they be?
4: If we're being really boring technically about it, it's probably swelling of the plantar fascia at the back of the hock, um, and typically they don't often they often don't really call it a problem from a racehorse point of view. Um, when they form, they're often hot and sore, um, and the horse might be lame for a little while. But once they have formed and are, are firm and non-painful, typically they're, they're not a problem. So, it's if it happens to occur during prep, then it's a bit boring because the horse needs a bit of time off. Or if it happens to occur during a particular part of the season, then it might need a bit of a break. But mostly, they're not that they're not that big a deal. It's it's a well recognised, sort of historically named. Swelling of the hawk, of which there are are many of them, but of those that are there, that's probably one of the more minor ones. There are other swellings that we'd be more concerned about.
0: Alistair Welsh there talking to Charlotte Greenway. Charlotte will be back this evening, and you'll be able to hear that full uh, interview with Alistair in the Saturday edition. It's Friday, which means it's time for the global rankings with our friends at Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Quiet on the horse front this week. We've got the arc. Champion Stakes, Breeders' Cup, Japan Cup to come, of course. That means we're going to focus on the trainers and the top 12 trainers, and boy, is it tight at the top. At 12, up one is the US superstar Todd Pletcher. Down two at 11 is James Cummings from Australia. 10, up one UK based William Haggis. For America at nine, up one is Steve Asmussen. Steady at eight, New Zealand star trainer Jamie Richards. 32 Group 1s in the last three years. Down two at seven. Bob Baffert in the week where Breeders' Cup is likely to determine his participation in that event. Up one at six is Australian-based Kiwi, Chris Waller. Up one at five is Brad Cox in the week that Monomoy Girl, his first grade one winner, was retired. Now steady at four is Aidan O'Brien. It's been a difficult week for him. He lost 35 ranking points as well here. Three down one is Chad Brown. He was at number one a couple of weeks ago. Up one at two, Charlie Appleby. Eight out of his last 10 group race winners uh, have won and steady at one, but for how long? John and Thady Gosden, who needs one trainer when you can have two, with Palace P and Mishra Stradivarius all to come on Champions Day, of course. James Willoughby is with me. James, this is an absorbing battle for the top spot.
5: Absolutely. And and just a word on how these numbers are compiled Uh, the top 12 trainers that you've just listed include six different nationalities. So, how do we do it? Well, we balance volume of winners, with the efficiency or strike rate of how those winners are compiled, but in the context of each trainer's country. So, for example, uh, Chris Wallace had the most number of actual wins um, in the last sort of six months or so, but he's obviously got the most opportunity. So we take that into account, similarly with Chad Brown, and that's how we end up with a classification, which really does reflect what happens when these trainers have runners against each other on the international stage and at the moment John and, and Thady Gosden are, are, are top of the lot after a tremendous domestic season but we can cast our numbers back to three years and look at how the Gosden runners have interacted with others uh, from around the world when they've met at the Breeders' Cup and such like and that's what gives the system confidence
0: in compiling this classification. And, of course, a very good season in the Middle East last year probably didn't do the Gosdons any harm either. But they're clinging on by the skin of their teeth. Well, they overtook Chad Brown a couple of weeks ago, but now clinging on to top spot. Let's talk about the Appleby phenomenon. Yeah, well, I mean, we talk about doing, putting numbers to these trainers,
5: but there's a far more to it than, than, they, than they can be summarised like that. And Charlie Appleby, well, his effect at the margin on Godolphin is absolutely staggering. If you think about when he took over, it was shortly after the, the Mahmud Al-Zarouni debacle. Aidan O'Brien was in his pomp. It all seemed like one-way traffic at the top of the tree in Britain and Ireland. And through Charlie Appleby's great skill, and indeed the way that he's such a steady individual as well, he's transformed the fortunes of the operation that employs him. And now look at them, derby winners, Uh, All the time. Some very, very good horses being developed. The two-year-old situation looks really strong. And he's a heck of a trainer. And I think Lucky you'll agree with me that these numbers really do reflect something more than just the trainer's horses at their disposal. At the top, of course, John Gosden for years, a a, a cum operator. Chad Brown, who you'll know very well from from the East Coast and his exploits on turf. Aidan O'Brien needs no introduction. Brad Cox. Uh, really impressed us in the last few years. But Charlie Appleby, what a trainer he has become.
0: And it's not just the resource, is it? Because you know, there, there have been other Godolphin private trainers who've had resources over the years. For me, it's uh, opportunism, sort of on the global stage, finding little niches and outlets for horses who aren't necessarily the absolute best of the best in his stable to win group and and graded races. And we've seen that time and again, particularly in the last couple of weeks. That's
5: right. And, And when we talk about what makes a trainer skill, well, obviously there are a lot of intangibles from the outside that we can't appreciate, decisions that are made internally that we don't know about. But externally, what we can observe is the way they place horses, the way they bring horses through. And it's obviously important for a horse to have the right stepping stones, to to identify the right horse for the right sort of task. That's something it's quite obvious that John Gosden is an absolute master at doing. Not always the case with Godolphin. You always felt at one stage there's a bit of shoehorning going on. They had to have a runner here. They had to have a runner there. And sometimes those uh, horses were ill-equipped to take on the challenge that they were presented with. And that's what Appleby's so good at. He'll stop with a horse. He'll lay it off. You will run some horses frequently. He'll leave others to one side and bring them back later in the year. And you're quite right. It's his targeting of opportunities abroad. We've seen it in the last couple of years in France. He's really placed horses extremely well in some of the Group 2s and Group 3s on, on the continent here, but now begin to exploit even greater opportunities on the far-flung world stage, Canada, America, Wherever he goes, well, Australia before that, of course. Wherever he goes, Nick, he wins.
0: And given that he's got a, a strong chance of winning the Group One Middle Park, and he won the Group race at Newmarket yesterday, the Tatler Somerville Stakes, uh, th- he is the number one elect, I suppose. Even though John God- and Thady Gosden have one ranking point over him at the moment, I noticed, James, you you be happily just added Thady to the to the Gosden ranking rather than try to separate John Gosden past from John and Thady Gosden. I'm in
5: the middle, uh, Nick, of a, of a study of to see whether John Gosden on his own is actually more or less efficient than the pairing of him and his son. Now, although I mean this very seriously, indeed, it's an interesting examination of what will happen. A younger trainer, a younger man can sometimes attract a different type of owner, for example. Sometimes they can even deter a, a certain type of owner. Who knows? So we'll see as going forwards how this operation clearly it's a part of some lengthy handover, some long goodbye perhaps uh, for the senior man. But at the moment, uh, very much that pairing in their pomp, sending out some very very good horses. And I've argued this all season, and I can continue to argue it. I cannot remember a period, not just in the period of TRC rankings, but going further back, my 30-year sort of interest in, in in racing, when it's been as competitive as this, when it's been as good as this. When there have been so many good horses around, each week I watch racing in Australia and America and try and fit in group races elsewhere when they're available uh, to watch. And there really is a strong and vibrant scene around the world. And that's typified by these TRC Global Trainer Rankings. Some very, very good operators. That's what makes the sport tick. It's the top notch trainers placing the horses, bringing them on as athletes, and letting them compete against each other.
0: Um, Before you go, James, um, you mentioned Jamie Richards there at number eight from New Zealand, 32 group ones in the last three years, might be the least familiar name on the global stage amongst these top 12. Who are ones to watch, do you think? Who are the trainers who are most upwardly mobile? Who's going to be breaking through like Brad Cox has done so brilliantly over the last three or four years? Well,
5: I would definitely name Andrew Balding, who's had such a good season domestically here. And in the last three years now, he's up to a career best 35 group wins. He's clearly on an upward curve. He's getting better and better. He's currently a number 19. Number 24, Joseph O'Brien. We've seen him, of course, um, emerge from the shadow of his, of his father, his brilliant exploits in Australia. At 37 would be my tip for the absolute top one day, believe it or not, if he can actually um, increase the size of his table. Francis. Henri Graffard. Uh, he seems to have it all as a trainer I think and um, it won't hurt his cause taking over as the number one for the Aga Khan so those are three names I will certainly be keeping a very close eye on as things go forward
0: okay thank you to James to Sean and all the team at Watership Down today uh, Lydia is uh, still with me and has tips or t- a tip or tips maybe even for for the group one races this weekend I don't know I ask hopefully but not an example.
1: I'm going with the Cambridgeshire, actually, the, the traditional eponymous handicap for the meeting. Um, and I really like the fact that Frank Vittoria has moved to Magical Warning. Ever since Magical Warning around at Sandown, went at Sandown earlier this season, I've been thinking, ooh, the Cambridgeshire is going to be absolutely perfect for you. Uh, I think his run style is ideal. I think the nine furlongs and rising final furlong is going to really suit him. I'm further buoyed by the idea that Frankie Vittori has uh, decided to ride him rather than Uncle Bryn. So the tip is Magical Morning in the Cambridgeshire. That's 3.40 at Newmarket on Saturday.
0: And just before we do go, who do you like in the Middle Park or Cheebly Park or neither or both?
1: Um, Who do I like in the Middle Park or Cheebly Park? Well, I mean, I'm very excited by Sacred Bridge. Um, I'm really excited that uh, that she is coming over with um, Colin Keane and Joe Lyons um, I'm I don't think I think that Sam Dream is going to be a, a, a big threat to her and Zane Claudette's form in the Lather as well I mean she is still progressing all the time these are three very good fillies and you know Flotus isn't that far behind either and James Doyle was saying yesterday how much he was looking forward to, to riding that horse so I think that's a really competitive Chieveli Park um, and you know throw in Tenebrism as well for Maiden O'Brien the once race horses won her only start so that's an exciting race to me and uh i'm finding it a little bit more compelling dare i say than the the middle part but you know these races have to be run before you make make grand statements really like that um and perfect power looked very good He, he looked unfortunate um i probably didn't didn't um stressed that enough at the time at Goodwood um and he he ran a more straightforward race in the morning, morning last time or things went more straightforwardly for him um I've liked the uh, solid application of Go Bears Go, Dr Zemp um, they all seem a, a bit of a much of a muchness to me um so I I think that um Perfect Power is probably a more compelling um leader of the market uh in that race uh, i think sacred bridge is going to have more of a race on
0: her hands and before we go i will refer you back to episode 248 of this podcast earlier this year royal ask at day two owner says huge gamble caboo remember him is a monster well here we are in Octo- uh, nearly in october in september still caboo has won caboo won at wolverhampton yesterday so monster or not he at least now is a winner. Lydia, thanks so much. Thanks everyone for listening. We will see you again on Monday. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdare's, the Racehorse Owners Association and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary.